I'm Charlotte Leslie, director of CMEC, and today we're going to be talking about the upcoming Palestinian elections. Palestinians may soon be heading to the polls for the first time in 15 years. For some, this will be their first taste of electoral politics and democratic participation. But it will not be Palestine's first democratic outing. Long before the advent of the Arab uprisings, Palestine held free and fair elections to choose the president and the parliament. In hindsight, these elections held in 2005 and 2006 respectively, mark the high point of Palestinian democracy. But the project for Palestinian statehood stalled badly as a result of the conflict between the two ruling factions of the Palestinian territories, the Islamist Hamas and the secular Fatah. A civil war between the two resulted in the Hamas takeover of Gaza while Fatah remains in control of the Palestinian National Authority. Here to talk about the Palestinian elections, their context and implications, I'm delighted to be joined by Hugh Lovett from the European Council on Foreign Relations. Hugh, welcome. Thanks so much. First, can we just get down to the brass tacks for people who aren't so well versed in the intricacies of Palestinian politics? When we talk about the Palestinian authorities, which areas are these? So when we talk about the Palestinian Authority with a capital P and a capital A, what we mean is sort of this proto-state that was put in place following the signing of the Oslo Accords in 1993. And so basically the, the, the Palestinian Authority was meant to be the nucleus of a future Palestinian state so in terms of its institutions. And that Palestinian Authority over an interim period that's now become basically open-ended was meant to govern over and some areas of the West Bank. And the West Bank was sort of divided into three different areas. I won't go into too much detail, but basically governing over the West Bank. However, I think the, the big complication happened has happened over the last one and a half decades. So when you saw a fracturing of uh, the Palestinian Authority and Palestinian governance, and it became Palestinian authorities, as you just said, and I think, you know, one of the issues was that there was a, a mini Palestinian civil war that erupted in 2007 due to uh, a political crisis that happened after the last Palestinian elections. But that, that mini Palestinian civil war, which was very short lived, but, but rather violent, it resulted in a split. So where you had Hamas, the Palestinian Islamist movement, ending up governing Gaza. And then the Palestinian Authority, ruled by Hamas's rival, which is the secular Fatah party of President Mahmoud Abbas, that Palestinian Authority remaining in control of the West Bank. And this fractured governance has, has lasted and even deepened since 2007. What has been the result for Palestine in very broad terms of this conflict between these two factions? What has it done for the idea of a um, you know, two-state solution? Where has it left Palestine? So I think one way of looking at it is in terms of what it's done to a to Palestinian political unity. And so clearly, you know, there's always been a, a multiple number of Palestinian factions and political trends going back, you know, the last hundred years. So, you know, so there's always, so Palestinian politics has always been heterogeneous. But I think a lot of these fractions and divisions have deepened since, since 2007, since the split. And I think that's had a severe repercussion on Palestinian strategic vision in terms of, you know, what is the Palestinian vision for moving forward and resolving the conflict? But it's also had, a, you know, an issue in terms of delegitimizing the existing Palestinian leaderships and their claim to power. So, you know, President Abbas and his Fatah party 
in the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza, you know, are seen as broadly speaking, you know, um, illegitimate. In that, you know, yes, they do have real constituencies, but their claim to be ruling is increasingly questioned. They're seen as corrupt and also authoritarian and not representative of Palestinians themselves. And just the other point to add is also, you know, much more practically, which is, again, the fracturing of Palestinian institutions. These institutions are important for, for Palestinian statehood. These institutions have been split between Gaza and the West Bank, but also, you know, power has been monopolized. Palestine as an issue seems to have fallen down the news agenda. I mean, there was a time that when you talked about the Middle East, Palestine was Israel-Palestine and Palestine was the main thing you talked about. Now that isn't the case. Do you think this factional conflict um, between these two parties has contributed to moving it down the agenda in recent years? Good question. It was, to a certain extent, quite in the media last year, right, Uh, in terms of President Donald Trump's much vaunted peace plan. And then, you know, for those who are following the issue a bit more in terms of uh, the possible threat by the Israeli government to annex all of the West Bank, which would have been seen as further undermining the prospects of the two-state solution. But I think, you know, the bigger issue is in terms of how do you move forward and how do you get out of this current strategic dead end? And I think this is where, and again, I kind of have to say that in my view, I think why we're here is, I, mean, I have to say in large part, I think because of Israeli policies, I think, you know, there is an asymmetry that I want to make sure that I flag in this conversation. But nonetheless, clearly, Palestinians do have responsibility. And I think to finally answer your question, I think one of the issues is the Palestinian leadership has been unable to table a strategy for moving forward and to, as, and to actually, yes, attract or ensure meaningful international support. And so some of the things they ask of international donors or, or the UK or others, in my view, are not really the things they should be asking to try to, to move forward. And if you just want one quick example, you know, I think President Abbas and Fatah that controls the Palestinian Authority, to be slightly provocative, I'd say they, they do derive a certain set of interests through their governance and through their access to these systems and to the patronage networks that come with it and that allow them to maintain power. Um, but they're also very much have become invested in the continuation of this current peacemaking paradigm that we've had since Oslo. And so when they interact with foreign policymakers, it's still very much in terms of how you try to move forward this Oslo peace process, which in my view is fundamentally and irretrievably broken. And so what we're not seeing is, in the case of Lisa Fatah and President Abbas, is a more disruptive Palestinian strategy, which again is nonviolent and, and political, but in disruptive strategies that can actually move us out of this current dead end. We'll come to the elections shortly. There are some who say, look, a two-state solution is in practice on the ground dead. So it's no use, you know, flogging a, flogging a dead horse. We've got to think about a, a one-state solution in, in some kind of way or a different kind of solution. Is that what you're saying? Or do you think there is a more creative way to continue talking about a two-state solution? So I think from the Palestinian point of view, first, before I get my own opinion, the current generation or the older generation of Palestinian political leaders are still very much attached to uh, the political project of two states. And even I would say Hamas is increasingly aligning itself with that political project of two states. Where there is a difference, and there has been a difference since the beginning of Oslo, is whether the Oslo peace process can enable that political project. So it's the difference between the strategy and the, the political objective. And this is still very much the conversation that's happening amongst the, the, the leadership and those 
who are challenging Abbas at the moment, including those from within his Fatah party. For younger Palestinians, the problem is not just the strategy, but increasingly the political objective of two states. And I think, you know, and it's, it's difficult to put uh, absolute percentages on this, but I think, you know, there is a, an increasing chunk of younger Palestinians who are a majority of Palestinian society who are increasingly open to other forms of ensuring, other ways of ensuring Palestinian self-determination and rights, not necessarily for ideological reasons, but out of pragmatism in that two states, in their view, is no longer seen as, as achievable. My point of view is to slightly dodge the question, but to say, you know, clearly the political strategy has not worked, as, as we've talked a bit about. I think from an external point of view, it is not, in my view, for, for Europeans or Brits or Americans to tell Palestinians whether it should be two states or one state. So certainly we can have our, our preference, and we do, and we believe it's two states. But I don't think it's for us to say, well, it's over, let's do one state. Now, people will disagree with me, but my view is more about how we, we set out the the guiding principles for resolving the conflict so that it should resolve you know, peacefully uh, and it should allow for equal rights for both peoples. So to me, those should be the, the prerequisites. But for me, it's, it's much more about, you know, regardless of whether you want to go towards one state or two states, you need a viable strategy. And I think to me, that's the, the thing that, that's inherently missing at the moment. outline to us just briefly why some people say the two-state solution is dead I mean obviously there's been there's a geographical reality on the ground of territory changes and settlements can you just outline briefly what's happened over the past years to make the two-state solution practically quite difficult to achieve so on one hand this political strategy that we've been talking about Oslo peace process has quite clearly failed to deliver over the last was almost three decades so that's the first point that we've had numerous rounds of negotiations that have not produced a full agreement or any agreement to resolve the conflict. The second point would be to say that this is not a status quo, that on the ground, we have seen since the beginning of the Oslo peace process, the continued expansion of Israeli settlement activity, which I would equate to at least a de facto annexation, that you know the, that Israel is settling and claiming additional West Bank territory. And in doing that, it's doing two things. One is it, it's increasing the number of Israeli settlers that would need to be withdrawn as part of a, a future agreement. Now, there's general understanding, even amongst Palestinians, that not all settlers and not all settlements would be withdrawn, but still many would. And a lot of the settlement activity has happened in areas and settlements that would need to be withdrawn. So it increases the, the political cost that any government, any Israeli government would need to pay to uh, allow for a two-state solution. And then just the other connected point, which is, again, that the settlement activity, it's also you know, building on Palestinian territory. And what this is doing is it's making it even more difficult to achieve a contiguous and viable uh, Palestinian state. And then the final point would be to say at the same time over the last decades, we have seen shifting uh, political um, trends, both in Israel and uh, and in Palestine. And Israel, you know, I think it's clear from the results of Israeli elections that Israeli society itself has been moving towards the right and away from traditional positions that are supportive of a two-state solution. And I think, you know, Palestinians, as we've talked a bit about, younger Palestinians are increasingly looking at talking about 
the potential of claiming their rights as part of a, a, some you know one state outcome or one state solution. So broadly speaking, you, you know, it's, it's a mixture of politics and, and physics. Do you think there's an argument, say, the international community could have had a greater role in ensuring the, the viability of a two-state solution? I mean, a newcomer might look at this and say, well, look, the international community agreed at great pains and great lengths um, a solution that it wanted to see. And then, I guess, for understandable reasons, um, that solution has been literally built over by, by settlements with seemingly little pushback from the international community to say this is a practical measure that's being taken against something we've internationally agreed. Is that a fair argument? Not everyone would agree with me, but certainly I, I would make that argument. And that I would say that actually on paper, international policy has not been too bad. Right? I have many criticisms of it, but like broadly speaking, you could say international and UK positions are quite okay or quite good, you know, that we support two-state solutions, support uh, peaceful resolution of the conflict, Palestinian rights, etc. I think that the issue is more about how we actually, or have, how we have uh, gone about trying to uh, advance that vision. And I would say we've actually done very little to advance it. And the reason we have done very little is, again, is that we've tended to put the preservation of the Oslo Middle East peace process ahead of actual movement towards a two-state solution. So for example, in the UK, there's sometimes talk about, well, the UK should recognize Palestine. One of the counters to that would be, well, that pre prejudices the outcome of negotiations or that would undermine the potential for negotiations to succeed, which is you know, really putting the proverbial uh, cart before the horse. So if we were in a situation where the peace process was moving forward and delivering, you could make an argument. But we're not in that situation, yet we also continue to bind our hands and to not take and to not envisage the steps that, that could promote the, sort of this different strategy. And it won't by itself you know, end the occupation or fulfill two states, but it could have or could still potentially have done more to maintain the viability and the vision of two states. And then just the final example would be, you know, I think Israeli settlement activity, to what extent have, have international powers really sought to disincentivize that? I would argue we've actually done very little beyond, beyond statements. And then the final component, which is again, brings us back to, to the Palestinians in terms of some of the trends in Palestinian society and Palestinian politics, which I don't think are the biggest threat to the two-state solution. I think I'll be quite honest in saying it's settlement activity in Israeli policies, but that nonetheless are a challenge and an obstacle. So to what extent have, say, has the UK, Europe, or the US really invested in, in trying to, to mend divisions in Palestinian society, fulfill Palestinian reunification and reconciliation and redemocratization? And I think this is the question that we're now grappling with today. I was going to come to the elections and, and again, a newcomer to the situation might say, well, look, you've got Israel, which seems to be having elections sort of every five minutes. It has a lot of elections, but it's taken quite a long time for Palestine to have any elections at all. Firstly, why has it taken so long for, for elections to happen? So firstly, I think, of course, one needs to say that this is ultimately about Palestinian political agency and responsibility. I don't think we should dodge that. At, uh, that issue, and we can come back to that in a second. But nonetheless, I think the current impasse and the deterioration uh, in the Palestinian domestic scene is a product of international and European and UK and US policy. And the situation we are in is in part our responsibility. So to be more precise, 
after the 2006 elections, which were legislative elections. These elections were considered to be free and fair. The EU made this determination itself and foreign governments. So they were democratic elections. But unfortunately, they produced an outcome that the UK, the US and others did not like. And the outcome was the victory of Hamas at the legislative level and the formation of a Hamas government. Now, there could have been a, a moment to argue, well, actually, that was, that's a good thing because you know, you're taking a, a militant group, an armed group, and you'll bring them into a political and democratic process. And that, that could have been an opening for, for locking in moderate trends. Unfortunately, at the time, the international community took the opposite point of view, which is this is a disaster and sought to undermine and sanction Hamas and the Hamas-led government. And in many ways, that stoked these latent internal divisions leading to the eruption of the civil war one year later. And, and so I think it's important to say that we do have a certain responsibility in the matter. Now, clearly that was a long time ago in politics. That was 2006, 2007. There could have been, and to some extent, there were some opportunities to, write, to try to, to mend those divisions. Some success was made. Again, I think it's important to say if there wasn't progress, then in some part that is because the, the parties themselves were not prepared to make the concessions required for that to happen. But at the same time, it's clear that international policy was still very much an obstacle, or at least a, a challenge that needed to be overcome in terms of how would international donors that fund the Palestinian Authority, how would international donors respond to a government to, that includes Hamas or that's supported by Hamas? So this has been, I think, a, yeah, something that, that the Palestinian factions have themselves have had to, to continue to factor in, and that has given them at least an excuse not to move forward until now. Is there any evidence that the West's attitude towards Hamas, EU and US, is, is changing? Is there any, any indication that with the Biden administration, for example, there's more of a willingness to talk to Hamas? Or is that not likely to happen? So in public, up until now, evidence has been quite scant. In private, clearly there has been a change in tone over the past years. And a, and a recognition that the approach that the international community took in 2006 when it, when it sought to undermine Hamas and the Hamas-led government and impose a no-contact policy against the faction and, and that government at the time was a complete failure. Yet those policies still remain in place on paper. Perhaps one, re one reason why they, these policies have remained unchanged is there hasn't really been a need to change them. Yes, in private, people know that they're not great, but considering the political capital that would be required to change them, the better answer is not to do it and wait for Palestinians to create a fait accompli that would require uh, the international uh, community to do that. And just to, to flag, I think there's two separate considerations that are often being put together. The first is, you know, what is our relationship and our policy towards Hamas? And the second is, what is our, our policy and relationship with a Palestinian Authority government that may include Hamas members or be supported by Hamas. And I think they're interrelated, but nonetheless distinct. I mean, I guess it comes down to that age-old political question is to what extent you engage with problematic actors. And there's, I mean, there's evidence of Hamas hardening its attitude towards Israel, which is obviously problematic and, and um, very concerning for Israelis. How much of a stumbling block do you see that to be um, in any kind of 
peaceful negotiation? And to what extent do you think the attitude of Hamas is hardening towards Israel? Hamas policy, and again, it's all relative, but within the context of Palestinian politics and where Hamas was 30 years ago, my view is that Hamas policy has been moderating. Now, when you speak to some members of the group, uh, moderate members of the group, they would make the argument that Hamas would be much more moderate now had the international community not sought to undermine it. And again, I think it's important to highlight the fact that there are competing visions and trends within the movement, and it hasn't been a linear evolution, that you do see Hamas swinging backs and forth between support for armed confrontation and political engagement, and that reflects Hamas's own you know, dual characteristics, that it is an armed movement, but also a political party. And where the balance of power, or I should say, where Hamas orientates itself is a product of its internal balance of power between moderates, pragmatists, and hardliners, but also a response to local, regional, and international developments. What I would say is that at the moment, like in 2006, Hamas has made a collective decision to move once again towards political engagement because it, it suits its purposes, it suits its interests. So that there is this moment, in my view, to try to engage with the movement and to ensure that it does continue along this path of moderation and does it swing back towards armed confrontation. If I can add just one other point, which is, you know, in terms of its actual policy positions, they're not the Swedish Socialist Democrats, right? So we should be very aware of what they are, well, what their vision is, and no one's saying we should love Hamas. But we also need to be, I think, quite objective in assessing what their policies really are and what they have been saying, and also what they're intimating in private uh, and in, sometimes in public. And I think there is a, 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 a clear desire from the movement, as I said, to, to move towards political engagement with the international community, with other Palestinian parties. There is a sense of pragmatism in that, you know, it has reached a working relationship with Israel in terms of ensuring a relative ceasefire in Gaza, but also a shift away from its traditional, you know, complete opposition to Israel and, you know, its previous calls when it was, especially when it was initially created in the 1980s for Israel's destruction and, and you know, anti-Semitism towards, again, a much more moderate policy position in which it could be prepared to accept a two-state solution. It could be prepared to accept Israel as the product of a, a peace agreement. Like, it probably won't do it before, but it certainly could do it afterwards, including demobilization. And, and they said that, you know, Hamas leaders say that in private, but also, you know, some have said that in public, right, including its top officials. So I think, yes, we should be sometimes, you know, cautious and skeptical, but at the same time, we should be hearing what they're saying and looking for ways to test the seriousness of their, their statements. Given that, and given that the elections are going to be a sort of democratic expression of the Palestinian people, I know it's hard to say, but have you got any prognosis or idea of how the elections are going to pan out, how the process is going to pan out, what might happen? What are the key dynamics and debates going to be? It's going to be slightly different to 2006. So in this case, we're talking about uh, legislative elections. They've changed the electoral system, which will now be proportional representation. And so what that means is you're unlikely to have any party that has an absolute majority in, in parliament. You know, one will clearly have a plurality, so we'll have more, more seats than the, than the others. But nevertheless, what that means is there will need to be a ruling coalition. So it's very much like Israeli politics, right? And so that will encourage, to a certain extent, you know, cooperation 
and a collective consensus building. I think, and this also suits Hamas, I think some people within Hamas kind of regret having won the 2006 ele- elections because of the consequences of that in terms of how they've suffered politically and financially, the, the pressure that's on them now in Gaza and, and so on and so forth. So actually, in some ways, this system ensures that Hamas doesn't win an outright majority. So it takes some political pressure off of it. In terms of actual results, so Hamas could have the most seats. Um, so there'll be 132 seats. Hamas may get in the 30s, followed probably closely by Fatah of Abbas. Um, but Fatah party has its own internal divisions and it's fielding multiple lists, um, which will obviously weaken Fatah in, in parliament. Um, so we're likely to have other Fatah factions also in parliament and then some smaller leftist parties. You know, this is also new ground for everyone. And everyone's going to have to learn about how this new system of electoral politics works going forward. So one issue we haven't talked about is the presidential elections, of course, which is another huge, uh, huge can of worms. Firstly, can I talk about the Abraham Accords? We've touched on it briefly, but to what extent have the Abraham Accords changed the context in which these elections take place? Well, I think they have, perhaps not in the way that President Trump would have envisaged, but arguably the Abraham Accords further incentivized Palestinian factions to come together and make a more serious push towards national unification and elections. The you know, normalization was seen as by Palestinian factions and Palestinians themselves as severely weakening Palestinian political positions and thus further increasing the political pressure and to a certain extent also the financial pressure in terms of you know, how these, where these factions get their funding from. So it's increased the, the pressure on these groups. And I think, again, so what we've seen, them, uh, we've seen happen over the last year is these groups increasingly, Fatah, Hamas and other groups coming together to try to present a common front in response to the Trump plan, in response to the, the threat of Israeli annexation of the West Bank uh, last year. And that's kind of carried on and with much time and effort translated into uh, this current electoral push. So maybe we can thank Trump. And just to just specify, of course, that the Abraham Accords are the, the normalization of relations um, so far between Bahrain and the UAE and Israel. Then moving on from President Trump to the presidential election and the election of, of President Biden, how has that changed and affected the, the reality on the ground and the perception of Palestinians about, about their future and how that's going to play out for them? Most Palestinians, I say most, I mean, most Palestinians that I talk to, are somewhat skeptical that there will be much of a change from Washington. And, and I would share that skepticism. Certainly the mood music will be better, but there's a question as to how much, if any, how much the Biden administration will invest politically in this issue. And even if it did, to what extent it could really move things forward. I mean, let's remember, we had a relatively extremely friendly American administration under President Obama. And that also failed completely to move forward the prospects of peace. So there's a lot of skepticism amongst, I would say, many Palestinians. However, it is interesting that it seems the, uh, the Fatah party and, and President Abbas misread American uh, signals and that Abbas assessed that the Americans wanted him to move forward with elections, or at least that he figured that moving forward with elections would be a way to, to garner American attention and to perhaps re-legitimize his, his leadership in American eyes um, with a view to relaunching peace proce- a peace process in the future. Now, I think that was 
a complete misreading of where the Americans are. Like certainly the Americans have not really sought to intervene or say much about the Palestinian elections. And I think they've certainly taken a wait and see approach. Um, so Abbas misread that signal. However, in doing so, he allowed the electoral process to move forward. So perhaps this misreading was ultimately to everyone's benefit. I mean, what do you think the EU, US, and of course the UK could, should be doing now, if anything mm. at all? I'm tempted to say, if you can't say anything good, don't say anything. And this electoral process, to a certain extent, has moved forward because the, the US hasn't said anything bad. Uh, and Europe, for its own internal reasons, hasn't been able to say anything because it hasn't been able to reach a consensus amongst its 27 member states. Likewise, the UK has been, has been uh, stumm. But I think at a certain point, you know, clearly all these international actors who are important donors will have to say something. And I think that's the moment where things will really matter and really influence the continuation of the electoral process. My view is, you know, clearly we need to learn from the mistakes of 2006. So firstly, you know, we need to pledge to, to recognize and respect the results of the elections. That's going to be made easier by the fact that we won't have a Hamas government because of the changes to the electoral law, but also because Hamas doesn't want to form a government. If it does participate in the PA government, it will be as a very junior member and it will be a Fatah-led government, I, I imagine. So that should make it a bit easier for us. You know, at the same time, clearly, this is about our funding relationship with the Palestinian Authority. So it, it is quite right that we do have some conditionality attached to our funding. The question is, you know, what is that conditionality? Personally, I'd say that conditionality must be much more closely linked to the need for Palestinian domestic reform, reconstituting the institutions that Abbas himself has undermined over the last uh, decade and decade plus, but also, you know, respect for human rights, democracy, international law, et cetera, et cetera. International donors will also, you know, want to, to maintain some linkage with the peace process. You know, and in that case, I'd say, yes, the Palestinian Authority, even one that Hamas participates in, can commit to two states. And I, ultimately, that is the reason for the PA's existence. So if Hamas participates in the PA, it is at least implicitly acknowledging Oslo and at least implicitly supporting two states as a political project. So we should be able to talk about that. But at the same time, we need to allow the Palestinian government some latitude in terms of how it can demonstrate and respond to our concerns and our own policy interests. So it's, we should avoid dictating terms uh, to the PA. How critical do you see elections, A, just the fact of having elections, and B, their outcome for the goal of Palestinian statehood? I don't see how you can have a Palestinian state. Putting aside the occupation for now and, and settlement activity and just looking at, at the, the structure of the state, I don't see how you can have a Palestinian state without accountable and representative and functioning institutions. I don't see how you can have a, a state without Gaza without Palestinian reunification. So as long as the PA exists and you have institutions, you have to have elections, in my view. I think then there's a second and more complicated answer, which is elections also allows a way for reviving Palestinian political strategy. Ultimately, you know, this could create some friction with international policy with Israel. But I think we should sort of allow, or we should allow a slightly longer leash when it comes to that, you know, so long as it remains within, you know, obviously politics and nonviolence. But I think we need to accept that 
a fully subservient Palestinian authority and Palestinian leadership, which has become extremely accommodating of Israel's system of occupation maintenance. I don't think that does anyone a favor and certainly not Israel. I mean, yes, over the short term, it ensures stability and calm and the Palestinian Authority cooperating in arresting Palestinian activists on Israel's behalf. But I think ultimately that's not challenging the current negative trajectory on the ground, which is leading away from two states towards some form of a one-state outcome, which will have implications also for Israel in terms of its future as a, you know, as a Jewish majority and democratic state. So we should see a slightly more disruptive Palestinian political strategy as actually in, in everyone's interest over the, the longer term. And that strategy can only come about when you have you know, the sort of revived uh, Palestinian political discussion and one in which Hamas participates as a, a political and more moderate Palestinian actor that is prepared to respect the political rules of the game. Hugh, thank you. I mean, one of the, I'm going to pounce on you with a very unfair question, so stand by. One of the things that's been very refreshing talking to you, and you know, you've, you've been studying this, you know a lot about this issue, is, is pragmatism, detail and pragmatism. What do you think we can do to try and move away from the polarized and sometimes proxy identity discussions that we still seem to have in the UK about this, you know, incredibly complex, difficult and and tragic conflict, which is ongoing and, and just needs pragmatic and delicate resolution. Is there anything we can do to try and promote that kind of dialogue? We all need to be honest with ourselves and lucid in terms of where the situation is on the ground. And it's not taking sides or casting aspersions, but I think we owe it to everyone, to ourselves and to Israelis and to Palestinians, to be honest in terms of what the situation is. As I've said previously, that there is no functional, viable peace process, and that you know it's not just a matter of trying to relaunch negotiations, that actually we need to have you know, this much more serious conversation about where, where the current trajectory on the ground is heading and what are the root obstacles of that. And then obviously that brings us into some issues that sometimes are sensitive and, and there's pushback, but in terms of Israeli policy, Israeli political dynamics, domestic dynamics, Palestinian political dynamics. And I realize I'm giving a very analytical answer. I mean, I'm an analyst, so that's my, my uh, initial uh, escape route. But I think, you know, we shouldn't shy away from what's happening, but also the, the implications of what's happening. And so say to talk about the emergence of an apartheid system, in Israel-Palestine. That's not to, to stoke animosity or hatred of Israel. It's to be absolutely frank in terms of the slippery slope in which everyone, all the sides, are, are sliding down. And to, to pretend otherwise is doing a disservice, I think, over the, the longer term for both sides, and especially to, to Israeli Jews, who will be the ones that will most suffer in a situation in which a two-state outcome and, and separation is no longer really achievable. So to me, that would be sort of the answer is to have a a calm and, and deep reflection in terms of where we're at at the moment, the reasons for which we're there, and then how actually we can we can move forward. An honest and informed friend is the best friend, I guess. Indeed, indeed. We talked a lot about the legislative uh, elections. I think it's important just to say, you know, there will be presidential elections also at the end of July. And there's still some unpredictability. We don't know whether Abbas will run or not. Quite likely he will be challenged by a senior Fatah figure, who's Marwan Barhuti, who's currently in an Israeli jail serving a life sentence. And so again, this will throw up new policy challenges for international donors. You know, even if we have a, a Fatah government in which Hamas participates, which is in itself a challenge, we could end up with a Palestinian Authority president who's not Abbas and who's Marwan Barhuti in an Israeli jail. 
And so again, there will probably be a, a, a creeping sense of panic in some European capitals about the outcome. But again, I would go back to what I've said previously, you know, we should take it one step at a time, hear what Marwan Barhuti has to say, what his policies are, set out our guidelines, our interests and our concerns, see how he can meet them, but also understand that a potentially more politically disruptive or creative strategy from the Palestinians themselves be not the apocalyptic scenario that some policymakers could, could believe. To what extent do you think you'll see alternative actors and players um, being supported in these elections? And will there be a generational difference between youth and, and you know, older population? Certainly there is a, I would say, a pretty sizable generational gap amongst Palestinians, especially amongst Palestinian leaders or leadership. And as we talked a bit about, the, the current Palestinian leadership is very much wedded to, to two states and to a certain extent to Oslo. Not all of them, but that's still kind of the general dynamic where the youths have taken, the Palestinian youth have taken a, a different approach. I think we're not likely to see substantial representation and participation, or I mean participation by, by youth candidates in these elections due to candidacy restrictions, which is I think one huge issue. But I think the potential for recurrent elections for a renewed political conversation in Palestine, which has been completely absent for quite some time, you know, that will provide opening openings for new sources of leadership, younger voices, some of whom are, you know, I think extremely progressive. And so we should, we should welcome that. We are very much at a crossroads in terms of the future of the Palestinian project and, and Palestinian national liberation. Does it remain committed to two states? Does it move towards one? What is the 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 value of having a Palestinian authority in the current in the current circumstances, where it's seen by many as a collaborationist entity, or to be to be a bit more uh, polite, you know, merely just a weight on the Palestinian movement. And so, so I think this is a decisive moment. If elections do happen, and you do produce a, a relatively okay leadership that Palestinians can, you know, accept, um, that will do quite a bit to rekindle some sense of support for two states and the PA itself. Conversely, if elections fall through, if the international community rejects them, or if the, if the PA remains extremely beholden to Israel and the occupation as it currently is, the, the situation is not able to evolve, then I think we head in a different path where there will be greater appetite for more transformational or more radical strategies further down the line. Thanks, Hugh. You, you've given us a, a really detailed and fascinating overview of, of the elections and things which nobody can be certain about. I've got no doubt we'll be coming back to you as things develop, but thank you very, very much indeed for, for the time and for talking us through all this. It's hugely appreciated as ever. My pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation.